0: Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation, news, and commentary. I am Drew's co-host, entertainment writer Jim Hill, and he and I are recording this show on Sunday, July 17th, 2022, which, by the way, is Disneyland's 67th birthday. Also, we are just days out from when poor Drew actually drives down to San Diego to begin covering this year's Comic-Con. How far along in the process are we at this point?
1: Well, uh, not very far. I need to get all my stuff together. I need to work out a schedule. Blah blah blah. But um, I think it'll be good. I think it'll be good. I don't know. There's not a lot. There's not a lot going on down there. Although you know, I did see the first two episodes of the new season of Primal. So did you? I'm l- yes, I'm a little bit ahead of the curve on that. So okay, uh, yeah. Ooh. And it is great, Jim. It is really wonderful. It's particularly the second episode, I think you're going to absolutely adore.
0: Okay. All right. I got to get caught up on that stuff and- But for that, first the news, and the news portion of today's show, uh, Fine Tuning, is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Jim Hill Media Podcast Network. For a worry-free travel experience every time, please book online at storybookdestinations.com. We were just talking about San Diego Comic-Con. Wanted to make a quick correction. This info comes courtesy of my Looking at Lucasfilm co-host, Brian Gaughan. Brian first wanted to share his insights about the San Diego Comic-Con Special Edition that was held in November of last year. Brian was there and explained that though this was a scaled-down event, 50,000 fans attended, and these people had money to spend. Brian's good friend, illustrator Bill Stout, sold out of everything that he brought down to San Diego, and based on the exhibitors that, that Brian got to speak with, this was a very common occurrence at last year's special edition of San Diego Comic-Con. So you had fans and exhibitors who walked away from last year's event very, very happy. Also, Brian wanted to give an update on, on what the actual COVID-related procedures are when it comes to entering and, and exiting the San Diego Convention Center. Brian explained, the last five conventions I've gone to, they've all handled the COVID checks the exact same way. You only have to show your vaccination info once on the first day when you arrive. Then you're issued a wristband that you then show the rest of the convention. So at that point, it's pretty much the standard entry and exit procedure. Like you you show your credential, you get in and out. As long as you have your wristband, there's no worries. So thanks to Brian for putting a straight on this and apologies for putting bad info out there. That was me, by the way, not Drew. Also, a couple of other San Diego related things I thought were worth sharing because not everything happens At this event, inside the convention center or next door at the bayfront. Have you heard about what's going on at the Gaslight Diagonal? That's that area adjacent to the Omni where 6th Avenue ends. No, what's going on? This is the Bob's Burger movie activation. And and by the way, I guess this is really a thing now, activation. Are there any themed entertainment professionals who can tell us when activation became a thing because because it seems to be everywhere now everyone's you well, I, I know that
1: that len is is uh, railing against the term activation on mm-hmm. the main show mm-hmm. i think that I, I always associated activation with something closer to what is going on at comic-con you know a limited time promotional event that immerses you in the world of whatever thing they're trying to market or promote. The, The weirder thing is when Disney uses it in park to suggest something permanent or semi-permanent that they've dreamed up, you know, in a boardroom. So to me, the Bob's Burgers activation is an actual activation. Whatever, however, the parks is using it is like the wrong way to use activation. This is how I read it. So,
0: there you go. I cannot honestly tell you how thrilled I am with that explanation. Is that pretty good? No, that was amazing. All right, now, finally, somebody has made sense of this. I can see a temporary attraction like the Bob's Burgers movie thing, which, by the way, Thursday, July 21st through Saturday, July 23rd, this is going to be up and running across from the actual convention center from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. There's going to be photo op opportunities. You get to play the Lucky Duck game from the movie, And the most important thing, especially given you're at Comic-Con, you're starving, from three to six on all three days this is up and running is Patty Hour, where if you make your way over to the Bob's Burgers movie Activation, they will give you a free burger. Now, mind you, it's a first-come, first-curve situation, and supplies are limited. But on the other hand, free food at Comic-Con, that's a good thing. And we were just talking about the Lucky Duck game. Well did you wait a minute, did you watch the movie yet? I have not, but I saw the clip of the lucky duck dance from the middle of the movie. And seriously Drew, that was enough to convince me I have to own the Blu-ray. <laughs> I told you it was great. I told you it was great. It was amazing. It's it's like, I mean, this really well-choreographed and beautifully hand-drawn animation. And it was like, oh, no, that's it. And speaking of which, the Blu-ray and DVD goes on sale Tuesday, July 19th. So I'm going out. I'm going to get this thing. And speaking of movies at Comic-Con, on Sunday, Sunday, by the way, at Comic-Con, always the presentations got a little weird because... That was it's the last day of the show, and didn't they used to call it Kids' Day?
1: Yeah, they did. I use I used to think of Sunday as get that hardcover graphic novel that the guy wouldn't budge on the price for uh, the last four days, see if they could talk him down because he doesn't want to have to drive it back to Toledo or whatever. You know, that's my <sighs> that's what I do on Sundays,
0: but yeah. Oh, you are bringing back some very painful memories, <laughs> anyway. Speaking of things on uh, Kids' Day. On Sunday, July 24th, in room BCF6 at 1245, there's going to be a family screening of Pixar's Lightyear. Oh, that's cool. It's being presented by Disney Media and Entertainment Distribution, out ahead of Lightyear's home entertainment release. And when did it become Disney Media and Entertainment Distribution? Didn't it used to be... Walt Disney Studios Home Entertainment?
1: Well, it's... Home Entertainment is... So DMED is the overarching, you know, business unit. So Mm -hmm. basically the company is split between DMED Mm -hmm. and DPEP. And Mm -hmm. DPEP, as we know and and Jim talks about on his other shows, Mm -hmm. is Disney's parks, experiences, and products. Mm -hmm. So I guess one... One arm makes the stuff, the other arm distributes. I don't know, but that's yeah, that's dpep and D-Med are the two different uh so all Disney plus is d med, all park stuff is d pep, so yeah d dpep is the dpep are basically is basically the <laughs> cast members that are being forced to move to Florida. d <laughs> are the ones that are. And comfortably stay in California. That's that's another way to kind of divide it,
0: Jim. Well, so. there we go. Okay. Yeah. Another time we get cut off of Disney's Christmas card list. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Did it say when Lightyear is supposed to be on home video? No. No. In fact, what's fascinating is it's all over the map. In fact, I was just looking this morning, and there's at least one outfit that tracks things as they show up on an Amazon, and, and they're suggesting it could be as late as the first week of September. I think it'll be on Disney
1: Plus the first week of August. Is my guess.
0: I would say that's smart money. I just what I want to do now is circle around to okay. So after, say for example, turning red turn up on Disney Plus. When did the Blu-ray become available for that? So well, I'll, right. I'll check check up on that later. Anyway, uh, while we're talking about Lightyear, that Angus McLean film came in tenth at the box office this past weekend. And and just in case you're you're wondering. The new animated feature for this past weekend, Pause of Fury, The Legend of Hank, that came in sixth, only sold 6.25 million worth of tickets in the domestic market, which is less than a fourth of what Minions, The Rise of Gru made this weekend, which is its third weekend in domestic release. So you're saying Hank wasn't that legendary? What was fascinating to say, if you looked out in the trades, were all the people talking about why put this out now why wouldn't you put this out in september where when exhibitors are like we have you have nothing to give us you know you have no product where you know this thing would have had a chance
1: you know what i heard though that that paramount bought the distribution rights for 10 million dollars mm-hmm. so to me you know they put i don't know 15 20 million into marketing it mm-hmm. they have something new to put on paramount plus in a few weeks it seemed like it worked out Okay for everybody. I don't know, but you know, okay. it's not know. a huge. I'm just saying it's not. It's not
0: 75 million that Minions oh, cost, no, 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 or no. the 200
1: million that that Lightyear costs. So
0: no, uh, certainly not. And in a weird sort of you got to feel bad. I you know, I was looking at interviews with with Rob Minkoff this past week, and they were talking about how this thing has been in development for five years, and started more as a, a legitimate sort of Mel Remake. Brooks. Yeah, yeah, that that's it exactly and then became a fable and you know then it kind of wandered around. But I think you're you're onto something there. That for Paramount Plus, if if you get a something you can throw into theaters for for ten million that you can then put on Paramount Plus, that's a smart plan.
1: Well, it's like you know we 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 always talk about it. It's so hard to gauge what a success actually is because the metrics are so incredibly all over the map and also so kind of obscured from public scrutiny. So you know. Who knows? We will never know how many people are watching Lightyear on mm-hmm. Disney Plus, but it could be an absolute boom for the the service, and we don't know. So maybe it will end up being, you know, a, a smash and some metric. But uh, yeah, I have no idea how some of these things are gauged.
0: Again, Lightyear was number ten at the box office this weekend, but number eleven was Marcel the Shell with Shoes on at eight twenty four. Just put it out in 105 more theaters this past weekend. and Is it
1: closer to you now, Jim? Is, is Marcel
0: inching his way closer to you? He's close. I mean, I, I'd still have to drive down to Boston or the suburbs of Boston. Okay. But I now have options as opposed to when it was in like four theaters, five theaters around the whole country. It's really a, a throwback to the old distribution models. And I know this because you didn't you used to manage a theater many, I many did. moons ago? I did. And in fact, isn't A24 planning on going even wider? I mean, it's in 100, you know, I think it's a like 153 theaters now total. Yeah. With the hope of going even wider based on. They can then turn to other theaters and go, hey, look, you know, look how we did in this market and you want it here. By the way, speaking of Marcel with shoes on, we were talking on the last show about Jenny Slate and Dean fleischer Camp, the former couple that are the creative team that do Marcel the Shell together. Did you see where he just Disney just recruited him to now take over the live action CG hybrid version of Lilo and Stitch? Yeah, I think it's a great decision. I mean, he does
1: such wonderful work with the Chiodo brothers on the the animation for Marcel the Shell, and I just cannot wait to see what he does with. Uh, I mean, maybe could could Stitch be stop motion, Jim? Probably not, oh, but you know, Oh,
0: that would be fun. Oh, okay. Remember, when, when this project first got announced, I mean, they, they'd been talking about it for years, but when the live-action CG version of, of Lilo and Stitch officially became a thing at Disney in November of 2020, it was originally John M. Chu, right? Yeah. And the phrase they use is, the deal was never finalized. Care to go three for three here <laughs> with, an, with an explanation of, of, of terminology? Yeah,
1: I don't know what happen there i mean he's obviously working hard on this two-part wicked oh, saga which god you're right is you know okay it's more of a threat than anything else uh, as far as i'm concerned um and he's got a, i think he does have a production deal with disney because he's a producer on the uh willow show mm-hmm. and some other things but three for three he did it
0: three for three very cool <laughs>
1: there you go Willow. Bl- blame wicked Okay. all of
0: your worst. There we go. All right. Speaking of the, the live action CG version of, of Lilo and Stitch, Chris kika Neo kalaani bright uh, who wrote the script for Disney's now-canceled Aloha Rodeo film, which I guess animal rights folks uh, got upset about and shut down last year. He's supposedly being chased by Disney to do the adaptation of the Chris Sanders and Dean DuBois script for the Lilo film. He's
1: also, I think, a new writer on it too, right?
0: It's always fascinating with taking an animated feature and doing these live action CG film things because it's the language just gets weird about, it's, it's an adaptation of an animated film which is mostly powered by a storyboard, but if it's one that was done during the second golden age, there is in fact a script. In fact, I've got a couple of them from, you know, like Beast and, and Aladdin and that sort of thing. But you can tell it's new to the world of animation, or at least was at that time. Anyway, beyond that, Dan Lin and uh, Jonathan Eirich, who did the live action version of Disney's Aladdin, are producing the live action version of Lilo Stitch with Ryan Helprin serving as executive producer. So,
1: did we ever talk about Guy Ritchie doing Hercules?
0: We have not. I'm just kind of intrigued... By Disney Theatrical is literally doing, uh, you know, they did that that version of it in the parks, and it's going to the paper mill late winter, early spring of next year, and that's kind of what happened with Newsies. They did that's the production. where I saw it, I yeah. loved it. Yeah, yeah. So it's one of these things where it's like, okay, so Theatrical's going to be pushing this out. The version that was done in the park uh, a couple of summers back, I mean, it had a cast of like 150. I mean, it had a kid's chorus. It had, you know, a lot of locals. I mean, it was it was a spectacle. And so the version that's being done at the paper mill is a sort of a proof of concept that this can actually work as a stage show that doesn't have an additional hundred people on stage. Oh, interesting. There's definitely agenda here because supposedly one of the things that Disney theatrical responds to is the requests from high schools and colleges. And they'll get letters to the effect of, hey, have you guys released our Hercules yet? Because we'd really love to do that. It was the same thing with Newsies. There were so many people who were cobbling together amateur productions just because they wanted to do the songs on stage. And so in a weird sort of way, Hercules' theatrical run could end at the paper mill. You know, just one of the things like, okay, that version works you know, for high schools and colleges. Okay, make that available for licensing. Right. If, on the other hand, there's a huge reaction to it, they could do the same thing they do with Newsies. I mean, Newsies went to Broadway supposedly only for 10 weeks and then stayed there for, what, two and a half years and then toured the country.
1: It was a wonderful show, and and it really didn't feel like something that should have been in a black box theater in Boise or whatever. I mean, it really did feel like a big broadway
0: show even that production had been built to travel that that yes, all of yes, the, yeah. the sets that were on broadway were designed to hit the road <laughs> instantaneously
1: well all it was was kind of a grid almost like a you know hollywood squares type situation <laughs> and you
0: know, yeah, did, uh, the tenements are, no 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 the tenements of new york by way yes. of, of hollywood squares yeah. i buy that totally all yeah. right so
1: fold it up throw it in the truck and we're We're off to, uh, you know, Schenectady or whatever, you know, and
0: uh, they did it. It was great. And speaking of of we're off, this is the end of the news section, folks. And when we get back, we're going to talk about uh, the Sea Beast, as well as a, a certain controversy involving Disney television animation.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify
0: Before we get started here, I just wanted to give a plug to to something that that got by Drew and I when it it debuted last month. This would have been June 16th, but the Dead End Paranormal Park series over on Netflix. Did you get to see this, Drew, at all? I haven't. I haven't. I. You know,
1: when Jim opened up uh, FaceTime today, he saw that I was in a in a <laughs> panic, and uh, that's basically the state I've been in for the past week, so um, yeah, I've been running around like crazy I went to that Nope uh, thing at Universal Studios gym, which was so cool, part of the back, you know, the new part of the back lot oh, um, no, really? yeah,
0: yeah cool. it's really
1: neat uh, anyway, I've been just trying to get all my ducks in a row before Comic-Con, so I have not watched it. But, but, Jim, you are not the first person who has reached out to me to say how special this new animated series on Netflix is. It is. It's
0: created by Hamish Steele. It's based on the Dead India graphic novels. And if you only have time for one, out of the 10 episodes, the episode nine, The Phantom of the Theme Park, it's a musical. And it's got these just wonderful songs by Patrick Stump. From Fallout Boy? From Fall Out Boy. Wow. Yeah. I just have to warn you, there's at least one that is a complete earworm that will will consume your life. So just consume can Didn't he do that insanely
1: catchy Spider-Man theme song, too? He did. Okay. He did. Spin, spin, spin,
0: Jim. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And we mentioned a controversy as we were going to break. Basically, over like the last week to 10 days, there has been this issue bubbling up online about Owl House and Amphibia, the two animated series at Disney Channel, which were also over on Disney Plus, and certain creatives who've worked on this show, through various accounts of that sort of thing, somewhat adult imagery of the characters from these shows that are aimed at younger children has gotten out there online I've had a number of people reach out to me to the effect of, do you want to talk about this? Because this is kind of shocking. And it's like, well, I'll talk about it, but it's not all that shocking. I mean... Wait, is this just fan art? Well, no, this is the thing. These are actual people who worked on the show who have produced this somewhat adult imagery. To what end though? that? All of these animated films and television shows that you love are done by adults who every so often just have to blow off steam because they're working with cute little characters and the results. So, you know, just, and I don't know if the right term is frustrated or whatever the, the case is, or whether they're looking to make their coworkers laugh by posting something that's shocking. In fact, Drew, remind me at some point, you and I will drive up to San Bernardino, there's an animation art restorer who very proudly has in display a drawing from Snow White that basically has Snow White lying on her belly with her dress up. But the notion is it was just done because it's like, I've been drawing hundreds of drawings of this woman and it just, I'm trying to make the guy at the next table laugh. And it was never meant for public consumption. It was something in-house, and how this animation art restorer got it, you know, some 60 years later and then proudly hung it, I I don't know. But it made its way out of the studio. I mean, it's Floyd Norman who confirmed that this thing exists. You you know about the Jiminy Cricket Tinkerbell thing, right?
1: Uh, This sounds very familiar, but please refresh my memory.
0: There used to be a rite of passage at Walt Disney Studios, particularly at the animation place, that if you were a brand new animator who'd just been hired at the studio, and so your very first time going into the sweat box, and that's where you, the animated scene that you're working on is shown in, in its roughest possible form. So, you know, they dupe the film and you'd gather in the sweat box with the, the head of your unit and the director of the movie. So you're sitting there for the very first time watching your work show up on the screen. And what all of the newbies never knew is that what they would do, in addition to your footage, is that somebody had animated. And I think Floyd figured that, it, that this was done in the mid-1950s because it, it it involved Tinkerbell. And it was a really on-model Tinkerbell, so it would have been probably sometime right after Peter Pan was done in '53. But it was Jiminy Cricket and Tinkerbell doing adult things. So picture this. You've just finished your first scene. You're sitting in the sweat box with your director and the head of the unit. And your footage runs. And then immediately behind it runs Jiminy Cricket and, and Tinkerbell going at it. And the way sweatboxes work is the footage is on a loop, so you can look at it multiple times. So, you know, this poor young animator is, shocked. I didn't do that, I didn't, and everybody in the room laughs, yes, of course, kid, you didn't do it. That's a, We just did that to shock you. And then they would carefully cut the Tinkerbell and Jiminy footage off of the pencil test, and then it would go get hidden away in somebody's draw. you know, to wait for the very next. Next newbie to show Victim up at this. Is what is, Did, there, we you're for, yeah. there we go. There we go. the thing is, you know, according to the Floyd, no one would ever admit to animating it. And people have been doing this in the animation field forever, just doing these inappropriate things with characters. I think the key difference is that because we live in The age of the internet and social media, this stuff that would normally be in-house and no one would ever see now has all of these ways it can filter out. And I think that's what's interesting about this whole owl house amphibia situation is the people who did this. It's like, well, they did this at my last job and they did that, you know, at the job beforehand and I'm doing what people of an animation have done for decades and just did something to make somebody across the way laugh or be shocked. And but the key difference is that this can now also leave the building. Right. And especially in our age where there's an outrage industry, there's a lot of people who work online who literally get up in the morning and how am I pretending to be shocked today? so I can generate some content. And so that's kind of how I feel about this thing. And by the way, uh, in case anybody's wondering, nope, I've never actually seen the footage of Tinkerbell and Jiminy Cricket together. But you've imagined it countless times. (laughs) No, In the
1: cold winter nights
0: of (laughs) New Hampshire. I was about to say, I kind of put it behind the steel door where I keep the nude grandparents. You know, it's just sort of like, you know, don't need that part of my childhood ruin. But (laughs) speaking of Jiminy and Tinkerbell and tiny characters, which kind of a challenge to use in films, especially when they're they're dealing with. With larger characters, and I, I bring this up because Drew and I were j- just talking about the Seabees, uh, Chris Williams' uh, film for Netflix, and how much he and I had enjoyed it. For Chris's first solo project, I mean, I think he really knocked it out of the park.
1: Well, did you see how many amazing people worked on it, too? Oh, yeah. You see, Tony Fuc- Fucili was head of, head of character design. And Zach Parrish is was the I think the supervising animator. I mean, he had some really he had some heavy hitters. Tobias was the production designer who most recently did amazing work on Zootopia. I mean, like the, it's pretty it's a pretty full house of of amazing people.
0: Absolutely, and and there's so many standout scenes like the maelstrom scene. When the, the red bluster is almost going to be taking down the inevitable. I mean, th- that was just such a masterfully staged action scene. But at the same time, I, I think one of the things that most impressed me about this movie was the fact that the, the red bluster really is a kaiju size character.
1: Oh, yeah. She's a big, big gal and uh, an amazing character. I love the design of that character, too.
0: Oh, totally. Totally. It's just a sort of weird blend of rhinoceros and seal Mm -hmm. and then painted bright red. But the thing I particularly enjoyed was how they were able to pull off the relationship between Jacob Holland, the monster hunter, and Maisie Brumble, the little girl, and make it work with a, a character that's basically the size of a skyscraper a lot of stuff literally at eye level. I mean, there were, there were a bunch of scenes where they're dangling down in front of the red bluster's eye, but also
1: climbing around her and yeah. when she's captured at the, in the
0: kingdom and all that stuff is really amazing. But if you talk with animators, something like this, where you have a giant character and a small character and trying to make that work, trying to find the cheats where you can actually have interaction. You can have an emotional connection. I mean, we were just talking about Jiminy Cricket, and, you know, you think about the scenes in Pinocchio. In fact, headed into this fall, we're going to get to see two different takes on on how to do Jiminy for today. We've got the Zemeckis-Disney live-action hybrid, and then, and I want to say Gennady, and I know that's wrong. Guillermo right? del Toro. Guillermo del Toro. Why do I keep doing that? I don't know. But I love that in Guillermo's take on it, The whole point of the cricket is he's the little voice inside because he literally lived in the tree before it was taken down to carve Pinocchio, which I I think that's a fun, fun conceit. But yeah, I mean, if you you look through Disney history, the number of films that have faced down this issue, The Rescuers, where you had Bernard and Bianca with Penny, or The Lion King with uh, Timon and Simba and, and Pumbaa. And I think, Drew, you were just pointing out Uh, The Good Dinosaur.
1: Well, you remember the D23 footage where Spot ran from the back of Arlo's tail all the way up to the
0: front of his head? Did you see that footage? I did. I did. But remember, that was the... Well, he he wasn't even a teenager at that point. He was like a a young adult, right? Yeah. They definitely aged Arlo down over the course of production there. But yeah. I mean, I actually asked uh, Peter Stone about this, and
1: he Mm -hmm. said... It was really hard. It was like a movie where a human is having a conversation with a bee, which they made an entire movie out of. I don't know if uh, Peter saw that one called Bee Movie, but yeah, I I understand yes. his concern. Yes.
0: Yeah, yeah, that also another excellent example. Yeah, I know there's a lot of people who dismiss The Good Dinosaurs as Pixar's first flop, but there's a lot of stuff that works in it. That scene down by the river where wordlessly the, the two characters converse about having lost family members. I mean, that's masterful. I you know, Yeah, they, it's a I,
1: beautiful scene. and It is, it is. The and scene I, where he, I, he
0: kicks up all the
1: fireflies is really lovely. Mm-hmm, I don't mm-hmm. think the movie totally works, but it definitely has flashes of really great, awesome animation and great character work, for sure.
0: Well, that's, that's why I'm, I'm so looking forward to Peter's movie next year, that this is totally his as opposed to having to come over the hill and rescue somebody else's movie. But again, sometimes you know you work on animated features where they don't ever really figure out how to do small characters interact with uh, larger characters. I, one thing that comes immediately to mind is uh, the Black Cauldron and that fair folk scene where the, the fairies are hiding away from the horn king under a pond one of the few deleted
1: things that actually made it out of <laughs> purgatory i think that that's pretty widely
0: available that scene right yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what Drew's referring to is it was a much longer scene and it was so many new young animators who were coming in who, you know, this is going to be our Snow White. And it's like, oh, not even close. They just <laughs> weren't there. They weren't at the level to be able to to figure out how to to handle that movie or, for, or in particular that scene. But then at, at the same time, you you look at something like Gigantic. And think about who you had working on that movie. You know I mean? Again, Nathan Greno right off of Tangled, and Dorothy Kim. And, and likewise, the Lopezes handling the score. I mean, it, do you remember being at D23? And uh, there must have been a 15 or 20-minute long presentation on Gigantic. That's how confident they were in that movie. I mean... They laid out the world and it's Spain in the age of discovery. And, you know, we the, heard a we, song from it. We're crying we did. Out loud. Yeah. In fact, Inma, that's when she's actually treating Jack of Jack and the Beanstalk like he's a doll. And it looked like there, there really was a movie there somewhere. But the story that always came back is that there were only so many ways to have a character. I mean, that's the thing. Inma, the giant that Jack befriends, uh, she's 60 feet tall, she's an 11-year-old girl, she then has to go up against the storm giants with Jack's help who are 120 feet tall, and it was just sort of this festival of how do we make these characters interact with all of these height differences, and I, I guess that combined with various story issues eventually killed the project, but... How much did they supposedly write off for that one? That was something north of a hundred million, right?
1: Yeah. Listen, Jim. We all we all take L's in this life. <laughs> Some of them cost hundreds of millions of dollars more than others. You know, we we'll, we'll be okay. Where everybody's fine.
0: Okay. Well, well, speaking of everybody who's fine, would you have predicted at the start of the summer that Top Gun Maverick? Would still be chugging along the way it is right now,
1: I mean, I, I knew it was a wonderful movie. I had no idea it was going to be a global phenomenon in the way that it has been, and it, it makes me very happy. I saw it for the fourth time on Saturday, Jim, so did you, you really yeah. Where? Yeah, did you see uh, it? I saw it at City Walk at AMC mm-hmm. Citywalk So okay yeah. And uh, fairly full house, or...? Well, we had a private... A friend of mine, uh, who you know, Carly Wiesel, had a birthday party, so she rented sure. out a theater. And so we mm-hmm. all watched it with her for her birthday. It was very oh, fun. Yeah, cool.
0: Yeah. All right. What's it like to watch it with people who clearly already seen it? Well, I don't know
1: how many people had seen it, because there were a lot of new, fresh responses. So oh, it was just a great time. I mean, that, you haven't watched it yet, have you, Jim?
0: I have not. It's it's
1: really wonderful. I know that I'm a broken record, but I think you would
0: enjoy it, Jim. All right. Well, again, it's it's finding the IMAX theater, and in fact, what I've been hearing that, evidently, this has never happened before, but there's been competition for the IMAX theaters around the countries. You know, between Lightyear and Jurassic World Dominion, and of course, uh, Top Gun Maverick and. My understanding is going into August, a lot of that they're going to make a very big deal about the, the notion that Top Gun Maverick is going back into IMAX theaters. Yes. Which to me is thrilling because, you know, I I procrastinated and missed my opportunity and it looks like it's circling back. So
1: your laziness has been rewarded yet again, Jim.
0: <laughs> you know, that's the real <laughs> lesson. <laughs> Story of My Adult Life. Yes. Story okay. Of life. So, uh, now, now, of course, uh, we we're talking about Top Gun Maverick because, of course, uh, Drew and, and Charles Hood do this wonderful podcast, Light Diffuse. And, you know, for a lot of the summer they've been doing Light Diffuse a lot shows, of course, about the Top Gun Maverick world. And and are we still doing that? Or are we shifting back to Mission Impossible? We're now?
1: back to Mission Impossible. We, uh, I think this week we are talking to actually the hair and makeup designer for Mission Impossible 2. So, if you love Tom Cruise with the super long hair this is the gentleman you have to thank um and then we're doing an episode about uh robert town's version of the first mission impossible script and then jim it's the 200th episode and let me tell you we've recorded it it does not disappoint i will say that i cannot say any more but i will say tune in i think it's going to be august 3rd we're bumping it up to a wednesday uh just get ready because it's, it's a uh, wild one.
0: But to tell you how much a, of a nerd, movie nerd I am, I'm actually now more excited because you mentioned Robert Town. It's like, <laughs> oh, oh, my God. Really? The Robert Yeah, Town we, we, we
1: found somebody who had it on some kind of old disk drive. Oh. Um, and we, we had it, you know, formatted. And uh, we talk about where it is in the continuum of the scripts because he and David Kepp were kind of batting the screenplay back and forth. What the differences are between his version and the final movie—it's very interesting. It's a look at the Mission Impossible multiverse of madness, that's for sure. The Robert Town version had been made and not the the final version, so yeah.
0: And again, big 200th episode coming up. Yep. Uh, We have a couple of podcasts here as well. We got Disney Dish that I do with Len Testa. We have Marvelous Disney, which I do with Aaron Adams. And of course, we have Brian Gunn, who is nice enough to update us about the San Diego Comic-Con. He and I do the Looking at Lucasfilm. But in the meantime, uh, as always, I know I say this on every show, but if you are not following Drew Taylor on social media. You are missing some really funny stuff as well as uh, some breaking news. Drew, can you tell folks where they can find you online? I am at uh, Drew Taylor, like a
1: tailored shirt on Instagram and Twitter.
0: What about you, Jim? I am on Twitter and Instagram as Jim Hill Media and over on Facebook as Jim Hill Media News. And let's see, final thing, folks, if you could do Drew and I a favor here. If you could head over to Apple Podcasts and rate, turn, and review, well, not just the show you're listening to right now, fine-tuning, but also light-diffuse. Likewise, if you want to head over to Bandcamp and subscribe, uh, that would be helpful. That's going to do it for now, and Drew has to pack for San Diego, and maybe we'll get to chat with him afterwards, <laughs> or maybe in the middle of, we're still working that out. We'll so. figure it out. We'll figure it out. But anyway, thanks for listening, folks, and happy trails to Mr. Taylor.